Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. This is Dave O'Leary. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls. So, uh, the band come off a successful arena headlining tour with Theater of Pain. They reunite with producer Tom Werman and engineer Dwayne Barron. Um, they start recording in 1986 for a 1987 release at various studios, one-on-one -on -one in Conway Studios in Hollywood, Rumbo Records in Canoga Park. Uh, we should note that Toby Wright is one of the uh, several assistant engineers on this record. And the record comes out and it sells 4 million copies, just like Theater of Pain and just like Shout at the Devil. Um, one real quick memory I, I, that came back to me after we were talking about Theater of Pain from that show. Mm -hmm. So there was a point during that show that I'd completely forgotten about, but it came back to me where th they were tossing a Frisbee around yeah. the arena and these really short, shaky tosses and whatnot. And at one point it lands on the stage and Vince Neil picks it up. And in a true golden God moment, he throws that Frisbee and it sails from one end of the arena smoothly to the entire other side of the arena. And it's just, it was such a beautiful example of this surfer kid, the glorious results of a misspent youth who probably played way too much ultimate frisbee back in his, his teenage days. But it was, it, yeah, it was a brilliant, brilliant moment. So- That's great. Okay, so they come off the, the Theater of Pain tour and the band is pretty much a wreck. All of the problems that they had are still there on a personal level, but they're much worse now because Nikki's drug addiction uh, to heroin has only gotten worse. Um, it's interesting, Nikki at various times is talking about how he wants the next album to be a concept album. And if you go back and you read the literature mm -hmm. at the time, there's all kinds of vague talk about how it's gonna have something to do with television and violence and subliminal effects of advertising. He wants the stage show to be kind of like a Broadway show in which the band are gonna play characters, but there's also going to be other actors at the, on the stage at various times that'll be playing other characters characters and it you know it all sounds very vague and possibly pretentious but certainly very interesting at a certain point he completely drops that idea and decides to go for a much more straight ahead some would say less ambitious appeal to the lowest common denominator others would say it's reflective uh a more honest reflection of the band's lifestyles of riding Harleys and going to strip clubs. And they come out with an album that is very dark, very nihilistic. Um, but what are your thoughts in general about Girls, Girls, Girls? Uh, I, I can't. I, uh, I remember buying it. I remember being like, um, <clears throat> again, at the time, I was not particularly judgmental about Theater of Pain. Like, I like Theater of Pain. I was 14 or whatever when it came out. This is probably, I would argue, this is probably the last 
metal album that I really um, bought in high school. You know what I mean? Because I bought it and I, and I, um, I think I gave it away. I think, I, I don't know what, what was going on. That was a big transition period in my musical taste. You know what I mean? I was sort of moving away from metal at that point. Um, I remember loving, liking it, you know what I mean? But not loving it, just sort of, you know, it's it sort of being like, this is not that good. Um, but certain parts of it were really good. Um, and again, you know, but that, that's about the, the only memory I have of it. I mean, I remember the video. I was still too young to enter a, a strip club. So, I mean, it was, you know, nice that it was, you know, whatever, you know, you know, the, I can't even think of appeal to my Puritan interest, you know, right. But, um, what is a strip club, by the way? What, what? <laughs> what is a strip club, by the way? I There's never heard strip of lighting there. It's, oh, okay. All right. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yes. You so, can. I mean, an, an appeal to my, um, you know, whatever, like I love the sort of sleazy truthfulness of them. And, and again, I remember thinking their lyrics were great at the time or were, were decent, better than a lot of stuff that was, you know, popular on the radio at the time then. Um, but yeah, I remember, I swear to God, I think I gave it away like at some point later in high school um, because I was almost, I hate to say this, almost vaguely embarrassed. You know what I mean? That I had it. You know what I mean? I mean, I kept shout at the devil. I would never give that up and I would never give up theater of pain, but I remember being like just listening to it once. And that was really about it. Dave, your memories. Yeah. You know, there was the first two songs, you know, obviously the, the, the singles, uh, I thought they were great. Um, but then the album for me at that time kind of fell off the shelf. Yeah. Um, you know, just, it, you know, when you got into Nona, which I thought was, you know, we'll get into that, but you know, when you get into that part of the record, um, until the very end of the album, there's just to me, it, it, it didn't uh, didn't come across with anything more than strong filler uh, at that point in time. And I really didn't think Vince's vocals were the strongest to that point. I thought everything he'd done before it um, was to me exceptional. Um, but this record, for whatever reason, I think it's probably just the songs in general. His his vocals really didn't stand out to me. I thought Mick Mars did a great job on that record. Okay, that's interesting that you say that because I'm going to take a, a contrarian point of view about that and that's say that here. I and say that actually overall I thought that like Vince really sounds a lot more full throated than he had up until that point. He's got it sounds like he's got more power behind his voice. Um, and I, I remember reading an interview where, with Mick Mars where he said that he hadn't played, he like literally put the guitar down for a year after Theater of Pain. And, you know, he wanted to sort of reteach himself how to play guitar. So he wasn't repeating himself. But I would actually argue that this is the first album in which, despite that, he starts to repeat himself. Mm hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, but you can also be repetitive and still be sort of the saving grace on, you know, songs that aren't necessarily strong in a way, you know? Oh, I definitely think that Mick and Tommy are carrying Nikki on this album because, I mean, for a band that's supposedly falling apart, the arrangements musically are much more sophisticated than anything that they've done up until this point, right? I mean, like there's actually, they're kind of incorporating some 50s sort of retro rock and Chuck Berry uh, and kind of melding that with some blues and and also truly becoming a monster groove band. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, see, I, but I see, I thought I could get your point on Mick, but I, I thought Mick Mars on here. I know, you know he's still using a lot of slide, but a yeah. lot of what he did was very lyrical and very tasty to me. Um, and maybe it's understated on this record, but I appreciate that. Mike, your memories? Yeah, I have some funny memories of this uh, of this album when it came out because I remember not buying it initially when it, when it was released. Um, when it was released, I think it was released in May of what eighty seven, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, but you know, I you know previously to this record, I was dating a girl for like two weeks, and you know she was like, "Hey, she saw me playing a church festival, and we talked about music the whole night. It was a great night." And all of a sudden, two weeks later, she's like, "We broke up." She's like, "Why don't we break up?" She's like, "Well, you, all you want to do is talk about music." <laughs> Okay, so I, I you saw me play a show and we talked about music the whole night. It was great and that, okay, fine. Next, uh, so anyhow, um, her older sister, who was much more interesting to me, um, we kind of stayed in touch, and I get invited to her graduation party in 1987. So it's this you know graduation party in a church, assembly room, having you know rigatoni and Pepsi Cola. And oh, by the way, we got this new Motley Crue record on the Boombox. Let's play it. So we listen to Motley Crue in a church basement, which is really funny. <laughs> And so we're listening to the record, and I remember hearing, you know, the, you know, the, the opening track and, and you know, the single "Girls, Girls, Girls." Like, this is cool. And by the time they got to the end, I thought, "This is this this really isn't what I expected," you know. So then I I, I hesitated to buy it for for a year at least, you know, only because. But even though I went to see the tour, I didn't buy the record until like way later after the mm -hmm. tour, even. So for me. I, I sort of got like, you know, the taste test of like, okay, I heard the thing before is before I had to purchase the record, but I wasn't that impressed. So therefore I didn't feel like I needed to buy it. Okay. But, you know, at the same time, it's, it sounds like Motley Crue. It's got the classic heavy groove the crew does on a lot of things, you know, with the, you know, the great rhythm section that they have and mixed great guitar playing. There might be too much slide guitar playing on this record. Um, but I think the strong songs are really super strong. They're probably some of the best songs that they've written in terms of the, the good songs. But it, you know, much like the let's say the Boston Don't Look Back record, it goes off a click a cliff quickly. Yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't really recover in a way. But it starts off so damn strong. Like no wonder they open with the two songs that they did on this record. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I liken it to watching like the Fox animation block where yeah. you, back in the day you would watch The Simpsons and you're like, The Simpsons is a great show, you know, and then you watch Family Guy and you go, OK, maybe this isn't as good as The Simpsons, but it's still really good. And then like two animation shows later, you'd be sitting there at like 10 o'clock or whatever and you go, you know, this show's terrible but it just it like the the decline in quality was gradually enough that you didn't notice it as you were watching it <laughs> yeah. you're like this right. is yeah. not That's good it. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyhow all right so first song wild side it's the best song on the album lyrically musically there's nothing wrong with it at all the way they switch up the whole Lord's Prayer and, you know, that kind of stuff in there with the lyrics, the, um, you know, it's the, when he shouts, amen, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's classic Motley Crue. It's one of the best Motley Crue songs there is. Um, I love the, um, I think I read somewhere that it, this is the point where um, Tommy Lee is using a lot of um, triggers and samples in there for the drums or whatever. And I didn't realize that until this year. You know what I mean? I just thought he was that amazing. But I mean, he is that amazing because he came up with those things. But a lot of the uh, different fills and that kind of stuff, I guess, were triggers. Um, but it's, it's man, there's nothing wrong with this song. There's like zero wrong with this song. It's one of my 
favorite Motley Crue songs, probably one of my favorite songs ever. Um, so yeah, I got, yeah, I mean, whatever. I'm not going to tear it apart. Like the riff is good. The lyrics are good. And the, and the drumming is phenomenal. Dave. Yeah. John and I are like minded again. Um, I, I have to say, um, it's one of the coolest riffs ever. Uh, it's a very, as Ted Nugent would say, it's a sexy riff. Um, you know, that it's just, it's everything about it to me is perfection. I don't care, you know, what band would have written that riff. It was, it was a killer riff um, that you just, it was one of those things you go, what took so long for that riff to come to life? How come somebody else didn't think of that before? Um, Cause it's almost obvious, but it's, 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 um, as John said, it's probably not just maybe one of my favorite Motley Crue songs of, of all time, but it's definitely in, in my top 100 of favorite songs of all time of anybody. Yeah. Yeah, I want to point out that drumming section where when they do, 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 you know, and he's sort of playing on the offbeat there. I mean, that's that's really neat. <laughs> you know, so sorry. Go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say, I, you know, I this could almost be the, the ultimate Motley Crue song. I mean, it's so damn good. I mean, it's got all the things that you expect from Motley Crue. Too. You've got the, you know, whammy bar intro. Uh, the drums are kick ass. It's got that classic Tommy Lee thing we mentioned about how you have like the snare and the bass drum on the three, or I guess it's one, whatever. You know, the count, it, it's it's so unique to his drumming style. Um, it's a great album opener for sure. Um, you know, it, it's just, you know, it tells a story. It sounds dangerous. You know, it, it's it's interesting. It, it holds your interest. Um, you know, I love how they kind of tell the story and then you get like the neighborhood, you know, nature sounds, you know, like the sirens and the, the crosstalk and the, you know, all that kind of stuff happening at the end. It's almost like, you know, that's like the punctuation to the, you know, to the end of the song, which really, you know, comes in in a great way. I, to me, it's, it's just a badass song. Not to mention the fact that the video is the, sort of like the ultimate representation of a Motley Crue live show from that era. It's all you need to see is that thing. You go, I need, I, I need to go see that. I want yeah. to see that. I want to be part of that. And I'm buying a ticket for 15 bucks, whatever it was. And, and you're in. It was great. This song is, is kick-ass, totally. And it's also the kind of song, like, man, can you imagine just being a guitar player and playing with that rhythm section and just feeling that groove? Man, that'd be so great to mm -hmm. do that, you know? Because they sound like those guys. It's only those guys that sound that way. And it's a special thing. And I appreciate that. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think it's obviously one of my favorite Motley Crue songs, one of my favorite songs. Um, but I do remember hearing that riff and, and saying to myself, this owes a lot to use it or lose it, you know, even back in high school and, and saying to myself, I like this better. I think this is better, but I think it's, you know, it is somewhat repeating something that they've done before. Um, you know, I, I think lyrically, there's there's so much to chew on in this mm -hmm. song. So many interesting and clever things that that Nikki goes to. Um, you know, from from the line, I, I carry my crucifix under my death list. You know, and the corruption of the Lord's prayer. I mean, the the whole idea that you know it's a perversion of Christianity to lionize greed and hatred. Right, which is something that you know you start to see in that era. Um, the 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 callback to danger when he says, "Long lost is the wishing well," mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think, I think part of the great subversion of this song is that, you know, it's it's not all really about like, oh, we're Motley Crue and we lead such a wild life. You know, it's really about 
the the kinds of things and situations that you find in areas of extreme poverty, right? I mean, and to a certain extent in American society, conventional morality is largely the province of the middle class. If you are very poor or you are very rich, you are given on some level a license to not obey those rules. And I think there's a certain freedom in that, but there's also, Nikki's also condemning that that existence of having no hope, you know, as being a kind of living hell, you know? So like all the things that it name checks, gangs, violence, murder, rape, the prison system, you know, a baby cries, a cop dies, a day's pay on the wild side, you know, this is, this is a dark, dark song, and yet it captures the spirit of what he's talking about so well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, you get stuck on the line to um, name dropping, no names, glamorized cocaine. You have to think he's talking about Motley Crue because it was during the theater of pain sessions that they literally took a picture of themselves snorting cocaine <laughs> said happy crew year, you know, yeah. and that was a, a promo shot. Right. So like, um, yeah, I interesting to note too, in the video, the mix is wildly different. Yes. Oh, really? Huh. The yeah. bass is like, is cranked up and like almost overpowers the guitar. Well, I want to say this too. If you compare the mix that's on the CD, which I, which I was listening to, the you know, you know if you compare that to the, um, oh, what's the thing? It's um, it's the Crucial Crew, you know, greatest hits kind of thing. It, that mix is even more defined in a way than the album version is. It, it's one of those rare occasions where you know the, the later mix is better than what the original one was in a way. Oh, really? I'll have to yeah. check that out. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Girls, girls, girls. I guess we'll start with Dave. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good Motley Crue song. It's obviously one of their, their staples. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to follow up. It's it, the song that came before it. Um, but it's got that crew, cool vibe. It's that, you know, that, that, that definitely that concert favorite. You know what they're going for? Strip clubs went nuts with it, right? So, you know, another, they hit the mark. Um, great song. You know, def- definitely probably one of my top 30 Motley Crue songs, probably. Um, but I appreciate it. Maybe not for the fact that it's an overwhelmingly fantastic song in the writing. It's just, you know, it's a fun song to listen to. You know, it's one of those songs that, you know, it's on the radio or whatever. I'm not going to reach over and try to turn it off. I'll, I'll reach over and turn it up. It's just a fun song to me. John? Yeah, I'd call it, again, it doesn't really hold up to the... Um... After Wildside, but just, uh, you know, just control C, control V, what David Leary just said. I mean, it's basically <laughs> the same thing. It's, yeah, it's it's a fun song to listen to. Um, it reminds me of sort of like um, that summer, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just one of those songs that I just, you know, the, the, um, the motorcycles revving up in the beginning. It's just cool. It's just, you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's a little silly, you know, now that I look back on it, but at the time I was like, yeah, this is really cool. You know what I mean? This is, you know, I want to go to all these places. And I remember seeing all of them when I moved to LA and being like, these are kind of scary places. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mike. 
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it ties in with the album theme. You know, you look at the album cover, you get it. You know, you get where you're going with the album cover. It's like, okay, it's going to be about this, um, and it works. I mean, you got like the sound effects with the motorcycles at the beginning, which you know draws you in. It's a killer riff. Uh, again, great rhythm section. Um, you know, to the point too where I've even played a couple shows. You know, like you know, biker fests or you know, motorcycle shops and. All you hear while in between songs is motorcycles, you know, starting and revving up, and it's like, okay, well, okay, here we go. So even like my singer in one of my groups was like, he's not the biggest Motley Crue fan. He just looks at me like and goes, really, you know. So I started playing the beginning of not this song. I started playing because I was an open G tune. I played uh, the beginning of Wild Side, and you know the place goes nuts. You know, so it's like <laughs> you know it works. You know, if you're gonna play, if you're gonna play a biker fest, play some of the you know the tunes from this record, and and you know for thirty seconds, and I love it. Um, you know, it's. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, my final point on this song is why in the hell did it take somebody so long to decide to write a song called Girls, Girls, Girls? Well, there are other songs. I think Elvis did a song called Girls, 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 didn't he? Uh, okay, but in terms of like you know, this genre <laughs> of music, though, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it would yeah. you, you think it would be like, it would have been the thing that you know, tons of other bands would have picked up on. Like, it's on every strip bar, you know, billboard or marquee. You know, good for them for saying, okay, you know what? We're going to do this. This is us, Girls, 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 and here's our song. It's great. Yeah. I mean, there is something, too, I think, specifically about L.A. and the whole rocker culture that is tied into strip clubs and going to strip clubs and dating strippers and all that. And, you know, I mean, I think that um, it, it's interesting, the, the line, well, it's Friday night and I need a fight. It, you know, he lifted hook, line and sinker from the sweet song, right? Sweet uh, F.A. Yeah. Um, which actually, if you go a little deeper into that song, uh, you know, he said the lyric is, and if she don't spread, I'm going to bust her head, which makes me think that I'll either break her face or take down her legs is simply a rewrite mm. of that sweet line. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting place that the song goes on the bridge when he says, just tell me a story, you know, the one I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me think of, there's a, a, a story, I think, in The Dirt where Doc talks about how all these prostitutes, I believe in Japan, were hired for Nikki. And Nikki was strung out on heroin, so he wasn't interested in having sex with any of them, but he was a talker. <laughs> so he just talked to them and told them stories all night. And in the morning, they were still there and they were exhausted from having to listen to him. And Doc just felt so sorry for these poor girls, you know, who were being paid to listen to him just ramble on and on. So you wonder if that might not have something to do with that. Mm -hmm. Um. Anyhow, dancing on glass. Uh, probably my, actually, I would say this is my second favorite song on the album. Um, I like that, but only for the lyrical content, because the what he talks about, in, you know, styling his, um, you know, it's about drugs. You know what I mean? Like the, he says something about his veins. Um, mm hmm you know, yeah, it's clearly about doing coke and heroin and yeah, heroin exactly. addiction. I mean, yeah. And it's sort of about their them coming to terms with the fact that they're sort of on the edge. You know what I mean? It's it's nice sort of self-reflexive song. Um, 
and the you know the glass the cocaine glass but also the glass of trying to keep everything together you know what i mean like that's pretty good it's not the greatest groove you know what i mean the song feels a little stop and starty to me a little bit but it's still um you know and i um i do like the mick mars you know dan you know the riff in it too so i actually i actually like the song a lot um i think it's probably the last good song on the album dave you know, I like this song, but I think it is the song that that left me with the impression of Vince's vocals on this. It's mm. that high vocal at the end, um, whatever that is that he's doing on that that you know towards that the end of that song. I don't know if it was a fade out in that particular song. It, it's like nails on a chalk, chalkboard to me compared to the rest of the song. It's just distracting to me, and I was wondering what Vince was thinking at that time, and and they were thinking in production of that what value that high part would have brought the song. That's just a personal taste thing. Beyond that, I, I, again, I agree with John. It, it's up to that point in time, it's a great song. And it's one of the stronger songs on the album. And, and I will tell you something more about the song when we get to the next song. I don't want to get too far ahead, but there is almost a theme to what we're seeing with this particular record and how it's going as far as how we're liking these songs and maybe how the band perceived the songs up to this point of the record as well. Mike? Uh, you know, I, I feel kind of differently about it because this to me is where the album starts to fall off a cliff in a way because, you know, yes, the riff itself sounds like something that might have been from Too, Sa Too Fast for Love, you know, which is cool. Um, but that, you know, that breakdown of like the downtown thing is like a weak transition to the second verse. It's almost like unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, you guys tell me this too. Am I hearing like a horn section in the pre-chorus? There's some sort of thing going on that's not necessarily a guitar. I think it's a key. I think it's keyboard. keyboard. It's keyboard. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it might be like I imitation. Think it's some kind of sample. I can hear that too. Yep. Okay. Um, you know, if, if so, if that's the case, then maybe you should have brought it in the mix to be a little more effective because it's sort of distracting in a way. You know. Um, but you know. In terms of the reason I say that, you know, this is where the album starts to go, you know, off a cliff in a way is because this is where they become repetitive because the chorus is essentially the same structure as uh, a song from the previous album, Theater of Pain, Keep Your Eye on the Money. You could almost sing, you know, the, the chorus to keep your eye on the money over this chord structure of the, of the chorus in a way. It's like that descending, mm -hmm. you know, babe, I'm going to leave you thing where, you know, come on, you know, like you've done that like, you know, months ago. Um, but I have a question too about, you know, what David brought up about the, the outro uh, vocals. There, there's got to, it's got to be a female vocalist on the end, right? And yeah, it is. Come in. Oh, is that for the line. Oh, that's definitely there? not Vince. That's a female vocalist. Okay. That's that's thank you. sweet Shiva you for by Jesus. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Because I was thinking that was Vince really trying for it. You know, reaching for the you know that that back wall and the, you know whatever he was yeah. doing. I thought it was him. And I'm like, no, <laughs> don't do that. It doesn't suit you. So I, I, I you know what, Vince is vindicated. Thank you, guys. Okay, there you go. Yeah, because that yeah, to me, I thought if that's Vince, then that that is some yeah, that's some stuff. Yeah, but, you know, it was funny in my opinion. You know, we've all written songs, we all write songs. You know, if you're going to introduce you know a female vocalist, you know, a co-vocalist into the thing, then introduce that earlier in the song, make it part of the song. Same thing with the keyboards. You know, it, it's a very Aerosmith kind of approach with the keyboards and stuff. But like, bring that in earlier. You know, don't make it such a thing where it's got to be the outro and that becomes, a, you know, it almost seems unnecessary at that point. Like, had it been there at the beginning, it would have been a much more interesting song that had a little more depth in terms of arrangement. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably like this song better than you guys. I mean, I, I think 
it's obviously autobiographical. Um, yeah. He talks about Valentine's and London found me in the trash. He had OD'd and they tried to revive him and they couldn't. So they literally put him in a dumpster outside this club and he woke up in the dumpster, you know? <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So, you know, um, the thing that, that truly makes this song for me though, is the fact that they name check Shiva at the at the very end yeah. you know when he says you know oh sweet shiva you were my jesus well shiva was is the hindu god of destruction uh who and dance and art um who is alternately depicted as being malevolent or benevolent you know it's she, mm. he's the god of destruction but also the destroyer of evil at the end of the world, he's supposed to dance to bring about death and and rebirth. Um, so that, to me alone, makes this a worthwhile song because not too many '80s metal bands were name checking Hindu gods, and you know that's that's a cool thing. Um, kind of a callback to uh, "Too Fast for Love." Fuel injected dreams mm -hmm. are bursting at the seams. Um, my bones can't take this ache. This feeling like your bones are aching is apparently a side effect of doing cocaine from people that I have talked to that have done cocaine. Um, anyhow, you know, I, I like the song. I mean, I hear what you guys are saying. It's not one of my favorites, but if they busted this one out, I would be into it. Yeah. And, and to Dave, you know, to, to everyone too, I mean, it was strong that they felt strong enough to, it, to play on the tour. I think it was like the third song in the set. So, you know, of a handful of songs that they play from this record, this is one of them. So, yeah. Bad Boy Boogie. Ugh. Yeah, AC, one or this one? What? The Bad Boy Boogie's terrible. Oh, yeah. There's a difference. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't like it at all. I, I, I got nothing to say about it. I did not like it. Okay. I, it sounds like a dumb bar rock song. You know what I mean? I don't really get it. I don't know. I never understand why bands do that sort of retro bluesy Americana sound when they're, you know what I mean? I never get that. I, that, that's, that sound is, I don't know. I just, I don't like it. Fair enough. Dave. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this, yeah. Um, this was the part of the album. I think it really starts to fall off that, that, that cliff to me. Um, I, I do like the modulation, you know, um, at the solo and to change it up a little bit. I think, I think this is one song where I think uh, Mick's solo is very lyrical to me. I like that. It's a strength of the song, but interestingly enough, um, you know, moving forward, it's, these are the, these four songs, these opening four songs are the songs that staples from this album that the band did during, on this tour with the exception of one of the songs that's later in the record, um, I think it speaks to what the band may have felt about the record after this point. But this is, this is, this is, you know, just super weak, you know, beyond that. There's not a lot more I can say about it. Mike? Yeah, I think in a way, you know, you can, you can try too hard and you can, you know, pull from your influences in, in, in too clear of a way. I mean, it's got that kind of, kind of, uh, you know, Elmore James, you know, bluesy intro, which, you know, has been done a million times by bar bands. You know, I think they were beyond this at, at this point. Um, 
And I think, you know, from a, you know, a rhythm you know, point of view, I think, you know, it's got a cool shuffle groove that they don't really utilize too often, but you kind of have to utilize that when you're going to play, you know, the blues, quote unquote. Um, and it also sounds like something that could have been, um, you know, on a contemporary ZZ Top record at the time, or also from uh, a lot of the stuff that was on the Aerosmith Rock and Hard Place album. There's a lot of, you know, shuffle groove stuff happening on those records, but, you know, Rock and Hard Place isn't, the, you know, the best, you know, well-known Aerosmith record either. So, I kind of get what they're trying to do, but is it really something you really want to buy into? No, you know, mixed guitar playing, you know, the slide playing is great, but then at the same time too, there might be too much slide guitar playing on this record. As much as I love slide guitar, a little too much of it, you know, it, it can be too much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it yeah. really, you know, just like, you know, the idea of like, you know, the, the bad boy boogie, like, you know, I don't know, I, I just don't really buy into the concept of them singing this lyric and delivering it. Like I didn't, you know, I, I just don't, it, they're not selling me on it. Nobody boogies in the eighties. What's that? <laughs> Nobody boogies in the eighties. There's no, <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? Unless you're fully doing some sort of cover from the twenties or thirties of some sort of, you know what I mean? Old rockabilly, you know, or old early rock and roll, then I'll give you credit, but you cannot say that you were doing the bad boy boogie in 1987. Especially when you, we look, look at it from the perspective of, you know, we were all too happy about the fact that disco had died out, you know, at this point, you know, <laughs> so you know, nobody wanted to hear the word. Nobody, wanted, you know, It's not the kind of thing you would go to a concert. I want, you know, I want a boogie. You know, it just wasn't right. really part of the, you know, the, you know, the, well, what it does the, is it, the tries, dialect at the it time, tries right? to give them some sort of um, cred. It's like trying to say, oh, we could play like the old guys used to play. You know what I mean? We can write a song about our, our bluesy, you know, because we're informed by this music and we're, we're, you know, like this sound. It's what I, the way I take it. And that's why it reads totally false and totally full of crap. Like I just can't buy into it at all because, you know, for, <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know. I just, I just didn't like, I don't like that they're sort of trying to name check you know, early rock and roll when they have nothing to do with that anymore, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Mike, that it is sort of Nikki Six's attempt to write a ZZ Top type of song, and it doesn't come out as good as a good ZZ Top kind of song yeah. done by ZZ Top. Um, so, you know, it, it's okay. I mean, Lyrically, it's kind of in the realm of a not for the innocent, you know, I mean, there's a couple of clever lyric touches where, you know, I, I like the line where innocent in every way, like apple pie and Chevrolet, um, you know, obviously Chevrolet um, being at the center of one of the world's biggest scandals, you know, 1971, where they had to recall six and a half million cars because they were death traps, you yeah. know, and that's kind of, you know, I, I get <laughs> Nikki Six's sense of humor uh, to, to include a line like that, but at the end of the day, is it that memorable a song? No, probably not. Yeah. Nona. Uh, incomplete, not not a real song. Uh, audio experiment, I understand that it's supposed to be out of, about his grandmother. Maybe he should have just left it for the next album to really get in touch with his feelings about his grandma. Um, because it sounds, it's just an unfinished song. Dave? Yes, unfinished song, a little snippet. Um, but I do like the little Beatles influence that's going on there at the end. Mm -hmm. 
You know, so I, I, you know, anything Beatles to me, I'm a huge fan of, and a nod to the Beatles. Uh, I'm an unabashed fan, so you know, I enjoy that. But yeah, they should have worked worked this out a little bit more to a full form version of it uh, itself, maybe for a future album or something. But um, I do like that element of it. But it's you know, I, I wouldn't miss it if it wasn't on the record. Mike. Yeah, I agree with David in terms of the the, the Beatles stuff at the end and sort of the, you know the mellotron kind of string kind of stuff that's going on at the end is really interesting uh that you know it's probably one of the strongest parts of, about the song itself but really it's it's underdeveloped it's one-dimensional um and it really needs to go to b section which is interesting too because you listen to the demo that's on the uh the crucial crew version of girls 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 there's another and there section is a, there. there's a b section there's a verse there's a b, yeah and but at the same time too as cool as it goes to a b section i was trying to think what does that remind me of it's almost the same it's it's not almost it's the same chord structure as kisses strutter oh is it okay yeah so i thought well you know it, it, you know it's one of those things where okay if you have a, an idea for a chorus then, then great then develop the song but like if you got like a, a, a huge budget for like you know a new album that's coming out the last thing you want to do is release something that's underdeveloped in a way you know it, especially when you close out you know you know side one of, of a major record you, you know this song it would have been cool I, I gotta be honest i think this song would have been really really cool and i would have viewed it maybe differently if it had not been released on anything and then when they did the deluxe editions years later it, mm -hmm. one of those, those things they threw on there is hey this is an idea that we have we were playing with at the time and we were writing that that's you know, i have i bring a different weight to that because it is just that it's an idea it's an audio sketch um, yeah. And I think I would have gotten a lot more out of that song, out of a song like this, if it had been released in that manner instead of on an official release the way it was done at that time. Yeah. I agree too. And also, it's funny because if you look at the lyric sheet, you know, there's one line of lyrics. Yeah. You know, so, is it really a song? No, it's an idea. It's, in, in, you know, mm. it, it's a demo. It, it, the, album, it, the album could have been done without it, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, Nikki Six went from in 1981 his biggest problem being that he had so many songs uh, so many ideas for songs that he couldn't wait to get all of them out and he didn't even want too fast for love to come out because he wanted to write all these amazing songs to the point where now in the throes of his drug addiction you mm. end up with things like this you know where it's like we're just we're just filling up space and I think the best thing that you can say about this song is it kind of functions like God bless the children of the beast in that mm -hmm. it's a nice palate cleanser before you get back to some of the hard rock stuff. But is it a great song? Is it that memorable? No. So now five years dead. Uh, I don't mind it. I, it's this, it's the same. It's girls, girls, girls with new lyrics. It seems like, um, it's um i like the idea of five years dead but i don't i'll be perfectly honest i didn't pay that much attention to the lyrics because um it felt a little bit um i mean i kept i guess that what i'm trying to say is i kept trying to focus on the lyrics and then i couldn't stay concentrated on them you know what i mean like i kept because it felt, I kept going like, that sounds exactly like Girls, Girls, Girls. And I, I mean, again, the phrase Five Years Dead is a great uh, song. I think there's, <clears throat> but then, and then it would make me think of the song by David Bowie, Five Years, you know what I mean? And things like that. Mm. And it was sort of, 
going off that end. Um, so it was hard to sort of concentrate on the actual song itself. Um, I, I read in an interview that apparently he got it from some a title of a book, but not necessarily a book that he had read. Uh, well, no, he so okay. So there's a book supposedly called Five Years Dead, and and the phrase in the book has to do with. Uh, a guy who hasn't pursued what he wants to do in life and tried to live his dreams for five years. And a character says to him, well, then you're five years dead. And mm -hmm. originally, Nikki says he was going to write the song about that. But then he decided he just wanted to use the title. Okay. Because uh, is the song supposed to be about the band? You know what I mean? Because the band mm -hmm. had been around for like five years. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah, I mean, lyrically, it's a little vague. I, it's, I think, about a guy who kills somebody mm -hmm. in Chinatown and then has to disappear for five years and go underground while the heat blows over mm -hmm. so he doesn't get caught. Okay. So it's kind of a noirish kind of thing. Yeah, see, I didn't get any of that because I just I couldn't concentrate on it. That was what was that was what was so weird about the song is that my brain did not want to focus on the song at all. And I don't know, you know what I mean? Like that's usually kind of odd for me. Normally I can listen and like at least write one little note down, but nothing. Dave? Uh, I don't like the song at all. Um, it just, the chorus to me, it's just, it's especially on that front end. It's just, the chorus just kind of goes on to me. It kind of drolls on, doesn't do anything. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't touch me in any way. Um, yeah, I, again, I, I have a note to myself over here that yeah, Mick had a tasty, another little tasty solo in it. Um, but other than that, it, it, it doesn't impact me at all. And um, it's one of the reasons I think, you know, strongly that this album fell off the, that little proverbial cliff after the third or fourth song. This is good evidence of that. Mike? Yeah, again, you know, like, you know, Hans said, it's like they're kind of, they're starting to repeat uh, chord structures in a way. Um, but they're, you know, at the same time as you know, they might be repeating chord structures from other songs. There are other things they would use later on the Doctor Feelgood record, like you know, the sort of whammy bar stuff at the beginning of uh, the Doctor Feelgood song on mm. the Doctor Feelgood record. You know, sort of like a, okay, this is where we're going to go with that. You know, in that way. Um, but you know, we talk about the, the lyrics too. I mean, in a way, it's we're all kind of circling around the lyrics, like what really does the song mean? And in a way, that's. An interesting point about a song, like if, if the lyrics really aren't so clear, then you want to read it again. You want to, you want to listen to it again and understand what the story is. Are they talking about themselves? Are they telling a story about somebody else? We had mentioned that, you know, the, the band had been around for, you know, five years, you know, plus in a way they had been, you know, released the book, you know, the first five years. You know, it, it's an interesting, you know, it, it's timely in a way that they would write a song with this title in a way. And, and given the fact that, you know, that they, they, that they've been around for that amount of time in a way. Um, but again, it's not really that strong of a song, period. Um, and also, it, it, I, this hit me uh, this week as well when I was listening to the record. I think this is the first time they've introduced um, female background vocals and female background singers into their live show, correct? Yes, the Nasty Habits. Okay, which is kind of a clever way to, you know, support you know, a band in a way and give it some depth, much like when the Black Crows would tour and they would bring in, you know, female, you know, uh, background singers you know if you got a band that really isn't known for doing you know full-on you know background singing in terms of choruses bring in somebody else to do that and support that in a way so and, and I, you know they, they use that for years after this so it's it's kind of a, 
it's interesting that you know they brought that into this record in a way and it just kind of hit me today it's like oh okay this is this is you know something that is is supportive in a way to to the live performance uh, when they would, would tour for on this record yeah i like the groove of the song i kind of there's some interesting stuff about the song musically that i like the the feel of the way that they're playing it i think is kind of cool and kind of unlike other stuff that they had had done before but yeah, it, it, lyrically, it's pretty forgettable. I think Nikki talks about in the throes of his heroin addiction, he was having paranoid delusions where he felt like people were breaking into his house and he <laughs> shot it into his closet and he thought he had killed someone so it's not too much of a stretch to extrapolate from that that his mind might have gone to theorize and ex extrapolate well if i did kill somebody what would i do how could i get out of yeah. going to jail and you know so maybe that's what he's writing about but again is that something i necessarily want to hear a song about not really um and the one line i do like is your life's and let's see, your life's on a steady tilt. I stand around and watch you wilt. Mm -hmm. I like the way how he com compares somebody's self-destructive behavior to a flower that's wilting. That's kind of clever and creative, yeah. but it's not a great song. No, no, in a way it would have been maybe a better closer for side one if you eliminated you know, Nona and then started the record with what would be the next song on the record, you know, side two open with you know the next song in a way all in the name of rock and roll uh not a bad song i mean i didn't i don't hate it um but again i'm like at this point i'm sort of going off the rails here i'm not really paying attention to the album uh, much anymore so i didn't really write anything down i mean it's a good riff it's a good song um you know um lyrically it you know, sort of, again, it sort of becomes like a personal story about the band, you know what I mean? So I kind of like that a little bit. Um, but again, not the strongest song ever, you know what I mean? It's it's better than Raise Your Hands to Rock from Theater of Pain, but it's, you know, um, still not one of my favorites. Yeah, you know, I, I it, this song reminds me in some way of uh, the April Wine song, the riff and anything you want, you got it. it you know, it, it does. Mm. Um, and that's not mm -hmm. a bad thing because April Wine had some tasty songs for sure. Uh, but again, you know, this was this was one song that you know it kind of picks up the strength on the album, and, and it, this song in itself was one of the staples of this tour, um, which you know speaks to you know the strength of the song mm -hmm. on the record. Um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a lighter sense, though, you know, just the riff—it's a really cool riff—and it reminds me when I listen to it, I can just see kids in their room getting a good neck workout, banging their head to this song, trying to keep up to. It. You know, it is a fun song. I get why they played it live. Um, one of the so stronger songs on the record for me. Mike? I, I find it interesting. I think they opened the, the, the tour or the show on this tour with this song, right? This is the opening they did, track. right. Yeah. They did, which was kind of an odd choice. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, too, when we talked about, you know, Kiss opening with certain songs on early tours, like, you know, sometimes you got to open with something that, you know, until you get the sound dialed in, you know, we, you, you don't want to like waste, you know, opening time with, you know, the song that's not going to be dialed in in terms of, you know, you know the, the mix and stuff. But, you know, I, I get the concept. 
you know, it's a high energy song. It, it works. It would have would have been better as like you know the opening track on you know on the beginning of, of side two. Um, and I could see where you want to play this live as an opener, but but it's also the kind of song where you know the verses really don't really they're really not that important in a way. Like it's more about the energy of the song to you know a general audience in a way. If you're looking yeah, for deeper point. meaning, and you're, you don't look in this song for for deeper meaning, you know. <laughs> but but if you write a chorus and it's got the you know the lyrics you know rock and roll and, and you've got a high energy song it's it's it, it's a no-brainer it's going to work to some extent but is it the strongest song that they've written no are they capable of better yes yeah yeah i mean musically it's clever and catchy and high energy um you know some on some level it's a pay on to his lust for an underage girl which oh. is Oh, sort of dis- I mean, you know, <laughs> she's I mean, only I do, I do like that verse about illegal is my scene. You know what I mean? That's kind of right. You say, yeah, she's only 15. She's the reason I can't sleep. You say illegal. I say legal's never been my scene. Yeah, that's kind of a, a little hard to defend that until you get to the next song <laughs> and you realize yeah. where he's coming from, that he might have an attitude like that, which is something for nothing. Uh yeah, nothing. Again, nothing stands out to me. I, I hate. I'm sorry. I got nothing to say about it. I mean, I like the idea of like, you know, I, I had trouble interpreting, and I know it's like just a bunch of like, um, innuendos or whatever. And well, it's a song about when Nikki Six was a 16 year old prostitute. Oh, okay. I didn't know about that. All right, then yeah. there you go. All right, so now I know what it's about. I mean, it doesn't, the song isn't, then I wish I would go back, I wish the song was stronger then because it's not, you know what I mean? There's not a lot there for me to get, uh, you know, that's a that's a brutal story to tell and that yeah. song doesn't, um, doesn't stand up to a story like that. You know what I mean? There's gotta be something more to that. I mean, that's an album, you know what I mean? And, you know, so, mm. and then to use such a cliche title for it, something for nothing is just, that, that's disrespecting your trauma, you know, almost. I mean, but again, this is an interesting thing because I mean, people use drugs to escape um, trauma. People use music and art to express trauma. Uh, you know what I mean? And sometimes, you know, the the it's almost like maybe if he wasn't so freaking high, this stuff would come out and be really more powerful. You know what I mean? Maybe he's, it's almost like he's using the drugs to temper. I mean, I think like you said last week, I mean, I think drugs to some degree help you be creative because like we've talked about before, being in a band is a lot of like, you're pulling down your pants and saying, is this good? Is this good? Is this good? And you're, you're very self-conscious about what you're doing when you're create, creating art. So being a little drunk or a little high allows you to say like, oh, I can say this, I can do this. You know what I mean? It breaks down those inhibitions. But at the same time, um, yeah, that, that really is interesting. Maybe if he wasn't so trying to escape all of his pain with drugs, he would have had a much better song there. Dave? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't know that either, David, that, about that, you know, the subject matter of the song. But, uh, you know, I, I, hearing that, it's tragic. But it, 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 a song like that, you would think, would have found something 
musically along the lines of like Gimme Shelter or Sympathy for the Devil or Heartbreaker from the Rolling Stones, you know, something very mm-hmm. big, iconic, you know, a, a huge one, you know, great multidimensional arrangement to really convey all the feelings that he was mm-hmm. going through and dealing with at that point in his life. Cause that's such a deep and dark and profound subject, you know, teenage prostitution. Um, it's unbelievable, man. I, I, I just, you know, my heart breaks for anybody that's in that situation. And uh, mm-hmm. I certainly wish the song would have done more to speak to those things, but it just didn't connect with me musically. I, I think it's a big mess. Mike? Yeah, I think musically overall, it, it, it's almost too similar to things they've done before. Like it's even uh, the, the slide stuff at the beginning on guitar is similar to what was on City Boy Blues on Theater Pain. The chord changes again are, you know, super similar to stuff that they've done on this record and also Theater of Pain. Um, but to, to David's point about, you know, the musical part, you need more of like a dramatic um, musical sequence behind this. If you're going to tell a dramatic tale, then you've got, you know, the music's got to match that in a way. Like Heartbreaker, there's a lot of, you know, ma- minor chords and it's, you know, it, it's, it, it suits the lyric content in a way. Whereas this song, it's like you've got the, the classic Motley bluesy kind of riff going on you got this heavy subject matter but the two don't really work and they don't sell one another like they're going in two different directions the music goes in this way because it's trying to be bluesy and high energy but it's serious subject matter and they don't really match in a way it doesn't sell mm-hmm. the song in the way they probably should be you know had they done a different you know chord arrangement it might have worked better in a way yeah i do like the riff i mean it's very aerosmithy i i think they mm-hmm. hang on to it a lot maybe too much uh, for it to be musically effective. So I kind of took a deep dive on some of these lyrics here. Okay. Um, So what he's doing is he's listing some of his clients, right? The foolish bride who, who called him up, begged to scratch her itch. Rich old man got the needle slipped and dropped a stitch. Okay. So, in the parlance of, of heroin use, okay, um, if you drop a needle, that's like slang for injecting someone with heroin and often injecting someone with heroin anally, okay? Uh. But the phrase drop a stitch means you messed up, you made a mistake. Like if you're sewing and you accidentally mm. drop a stitch. So if you read that, got the needle, slipped and dropped a stitch, somebody messed up while they were trying to do that. Now, whether that was something that was he was doing to his client or his client was doing to him or any combination thereof, any way you slice it, that's not good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, the whole watch her watch seconds on the clock, that, that, that thing that prostitutes talk about where they have a complete disassociation from their bodies while they're, having sex with their clients where they're just basically, you know, every second that goes by feels like minutes to them and they just can't wait to get it over and get out of there. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's such a heavy, dark song. I wish that I, I liked it better, you know, in, in terms of its overall effectiveness, but yeah, I mean, even for a treat gave it free happy 63, you know, (laughs) This is as dark as as Nikki's ever gotten, and probably as honest. Yeah, and also too lyrics like "easy money for such a good deed," and you know, leave the money where it's easy to see. I mean, it's 
you don't want to get ripped off when in that profession you know that's the ultimate sacrifice in terms of like you know, you know a professional you know um providing service in a way it's it's it's, it's nutty it's dark it's but it's also not the kind of thing you want to try to sell in like a you know like a rock anthem you know like something for nothing and you know no. in the verses yeah, yeah exactly hey, come on it's, it really just does, doesn't work and it works lyrically and it works musically but the two together to me are divergent in a way yeah as they as they say in the literature criticism world it lacks tone agreed I mean, the tone's off it doesn't work yeah you're all i need um uh, seems to be sort of another attempt at um home sweet home uh didn't really um it doesn't really stand out it doesn't have that like home sweet home had that great sort of solo section in it it doesn't i wish there was more to it vince's voice i noted sounds a little weak in it to me um you know what i mean sounds like he's really trying to like reach too hard you know what i mean I could be wrong. I could be like, actually, it is good, but I just didn't like his voice on it. Dave? Yeah, this was the other song that stood out to me as, a, as a, one of the Vince songs I just thought wasn't up to par with what he'd done in the past. And yeah, I agree with John. I, at, at first blush, when you listen to the song, you go, is this another attempt at the label putting pressure on a band to repeat you know, another hit, in this case, Home Sweet Home? But if you listen to and you pay attention to the lyrics, it is just like its predecessor. It's extremely dark. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an Alice Cooper meets a, 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 an 80s horror slash film um, type of thing. You, you look at it, it's almost shocking when you look at the lyrics. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it brings an entirely different dimension to this song. And I'll leave that to you, Dave, because that's what you do so well. But um, I have a different appreciation for the song based on the depth of the lyric. I listen to it with a different lens than I would Home Sweet Home. So I actually say I do kind of like it. Mike? Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that for sure, David, because the, the lyrics are super dark and super heavy and super interesting. I mean, in a way, and musically, the music doesn't support the song in a way because I was trying to think about the, you know the chorus structure. I thought, why does it sound like all of a sudden they brought like you know David Foster to work with Chicago, and now they're gonna all of a sudden he's gonna work with Motley Crue in a way? Like it, just, it didn't really work. I thought, what the hell's going on here? But it's also um, similar in tone to things that Aerosmith had done with uh, songs like Angel from Permanent Vacation, um, and also Home Tonight from uh, the album Rocks. You know, which those are good targets to aim for, but like, does it really work? It, it, I don't know, but also too, like this song in particular on this record doesn't even sound like some of the guys playing. Like the, the drums are very subdued in terms of their tone. It doesn't, even, to me, it doesn't really sound like Tommy playing. Um, and, the, and the guitar playing in some of the, you know, the bridges and, and, the, and the solos and stuff almost sounds like they brought in like a session guy to do some of that stuff because the guitar mm -hmm. tone is nowhere nearly as full as, you know, it would sound like if Mick was playing that, which I'm not saying he wasn't on the record on this song, but there's a definite approach to, make it sound different than they sounded like on the, on the rest of his record. Hmm. Um, and then chord structure with the verse, I was like, what is that chord structure? And if you sing along, you know, to the, to the verse, it's basically the same chord structure as either uh, Cindy Lauper Girls Just Want to Have Fun or the Eddie and the Cruisers track, uh, Tender Years, in a way. Like it's that, hmm. it, it, uh, you can tell like they're trying to sound like a, a classic, like, you know, 50s chord structure, but it's been done before. And it had been done, you know, it, 
within you know a few years of you know them releasing releasing this record in a way. So I don't know. It, I mean, I get the fact you want to have a ballad on on a record, and I'm sure they you know, they tried hard to, to do that. But it, I, I don't know. To me, just like the tone overall makes me want to tune out. I don't want to hear the rest of the song, it, which is a shame because the lyrics are so damn heavy and so dark that it deserves better than that. Well, that, but I think mus musically, it's it's like okay, I've heard this before. This is their version of that, and I don't really need to listen anymore, which which is a shame. You know, that's a, I'm embarrassed to even say that. I would say I don't need to hear that song based on the way it sounds, but. You know, to the average listener, they'll probably turn it off. You know, after hearing a great track like you know, "Open or Wild Side" and "Girls, Girls, Girls," and you get to this, you're like, "Oh, okay." Now, yeah, that's a good point, Mike. I mean, because it is in its way, it's two songs in a row that have these really intense lyrical backdrops, right? But the yeah. song, the music itself, doesn't match yeah. the story. Right? Yeah, it's a tone issue again. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean. Supposedly, Nikki was inspired. He heard this news report about this guy who had murdered his girlfriend and didn't really, he was mentally ill, hadn't, didn't really realize on some level what he had actually done. And he thought to himself, I want to write, could I write as an artistic challenge, a love song about a guy who kills his girlfriend and is mentally ill? And I mean, that's an interesting artistic challenge, but do I want to hear a song about that? I mean, it's it's relatively clever in terms of the lyrics and the turns of phrase. You know, I love her so, so I put her to sleep. And, you know, there's all kinds of interesting wordplay that Nikki's playing with, but at the end of the day, is it as iconic as Theater of Pain and Home Sweet Home? Not, not even in the same realm. You know, so like, I guess Nikki was able to fulfill that that challenge to himself, but it's not a song that that I want to hear. I know one of the the influences you know on on Nikki and the band were the band Stars, and on the uh, the debut Stars record there was a song called uh, you know Pull the Plug, mm. which is you know, also very you know dark subject matter in a way. And you know, I guess you know at the time I you know I wasn't aware of it, but they got a lot of a lot of stuff for, you know, writing a song like that at the time. So interesting, you can write a song like that, let's say, what, 10 years later, and it's not even, you know, a blip on the map, you know, like. Well, there was a video done for this song that was banned by MTV and they, they released oh, okay. a censored version of the video. Um, oh, that does remind me. One thing I always thought is that you wonder if this song was at all an influence on Axl Rose, uh, Guns N' Roses, when he wrote, I used to love her. Um, you know, where he's talking about the fact that he had to put down his dog, but he's doing it in a purposely vague enough way that he could be talking about killing his girlfriend. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Jailhouse Rock. Uh, not the best closer. Again, it seems like Motley Crue is now on their what is this their third album their fourth album where they're and i think a lot of times this is when bands try and prove that they have cred that they can play old rock and roll that they're part of the rock and roll tradition they're not just some sort of offshoot like you two did it with rattle and hum you know what i mean there's lots of you know where their mm -hmm. bands start to sort of say like we're part of this rock and roll pantheon now and mm -hmm. so we're gonna do uh this song by elvis um and didn't they they did do i heard they did a cover of like um 
Anarchy in the UK or something like that. Didn't they do that at some point? That yeah, that came later. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I don't like it because it seems like, why are you even trying this hard? You know what I mean? Like, there's got to be another song sitting around or wait another month to write something, particularly since it's a live version. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, throw in Brownsville Station, smoking in the boys' room live or something, or, you know, I don't know. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't really grab me. I don't particularly like the performance. Um, again, these are songs, you know, Jailhouse Rock is a song that, you know, you've been hearing your whole life. And so you don't really pay that. I didn't really pay that much attention to it. Dave? Unlike the original, I hear if you try to dance this, it looks like you're having a medical emergency. <laughs> 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 All I got to say. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, true. <laughs> there <you> go. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, I, I will follow up and I will revisit my point about hearing the record for the first time at a uh, graduation party in, in, in a church basement uh, assembly room. By the time it got around to hearing this song on cassette, you know, side two, we were literally laughing. Like how, f it doesn't need to be that fast. Really, this is what we're hearing. This is like the closing track on the record. It's so unnecessary and so over the top. I mean, it might work for a live show presentation, but for an album closer, it's, it's really, you know, for God's sakes, I mean, there are way better versions of Jailhouse Rock covers like, you know, the Jeff Beck albums, the, the early Jeff Beck records. And th that's like, that's heavy. Yeah, really yeah, heavy. yeah, good point. That, that's killer. There's a lot of depth, a lot of space. It's just mm. way over the top and way too fast and way unnecessary and way too long. You know, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Hey, it goes, and then they do like the, the, the blues descending intro twice, you know, I get it. Which is funny too, because I think, um, did we mention the Kiss was thinking about uh, covering the song? They were as a they were for, alive, for too, right? alive too, and then Elvis oh. died, and so they thought it would be in bad taste. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, but you know, at the same time, we've mentioned that you know they had a, this wealth of material that they didn't you know have the space to you know to fit on the record. Like, why put this kind of cover tune on a record? This is never going to be a single. This is never going to be something you're going to be able to sell to radio and say this is here. Here's the new Motley Crue single, you know, Jailhouse Rock, and it's going to work. It's not going to work. It's pointless. Put something yeah. original on the record, you know, as a closer in a way. Or go so left a field with a cover, you know what I mean? Do something totally bizarro, you know, and re-update it. I mean, uh, that choice of the Brownsville Station song was actually kind of a stroke of genius because it's, yeah. even though it was a number, you know, it was like a number two song in 1974 or whatever, it's, it was pretty much a forgotten song by the time they touched it, uh, touched on it. You know what I mean? So why not mm -hmm. pick another forgotten great rocker, you know? And it's not actually musically that dissimilar to Smoking in the Boys Room, right? Because both songs have that da down kind of yeah, half-step yeah. slide thing. Um, I mean, they did play it on the Theater of Pain tour, but it, it its inclusion sort of feels like it's at best a way to be self-reflective of the fact that they knew that Vince was going to have to serve some jail time. <laughs> and so they did it with kind of a nod and a wink, but, you know, that's in questionable taste to begin with. So yeah. yeah that's pretty good. If I'm ever gonna do jail time, do not cover jailhouse rock. <laughs> just, just heads up. Well, you know, if you if you're gonna do it, then do it like the Blues Brothers did, right? You know, because you know they closed the move with it, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And remember right. too that in the Blues Brothers movie, the first guy that jumps up on the table and starts dancing around, you might not know this. 
prisoner A or whatever that jumps up on the table dancing is Joe Walsh from the Eagles. Ah, that's a fun fact. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So who saw this tour? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. I think I went with you. Yeah, you probably did, John. Yeah, I saw it. I liked it. This was the first, this was uh, the Tommy Lee putting the drums forward or whatever. You know what I mean? So you could see him play, right? Yeah, I remember that. That was cool. I thought, yeah, I mean, I, I remember being blown away by the show. The show was great, you know, but um, uh, yeah, it, I liked it. I don't have, I don't have any real solid memories except for the drum solo and um, for some reason the Mick Mars guitar solo. Mm. You know what I mean? Because I remember being a little, not, not bored by it. Usually I don't like those musical breaks when they do the solos. You know what I mean? I'm always kind of like, they're kind of boring to me, but I remember like being impressed by both of them and going like, Hey, that, that didn't suck, you know? So cool. Dave, did you catch this tour? No, they didn't come through Vegas on that tour. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Really? Huh. Really? And I had to go and look just to make sure wow. I wasn't, and I wasn't wrong because I've seen them pretty much every time they've come through Las Vegas. And um, I didn't see this tour and I went and looked. I'm like, no, they skipped right over Las Vegas. They did Salt Lake City. They did. I wonder if they had a date and they canceled it because I know they canceled a lot of dates on this tour just because the band was a bit of a mess. Oh, could have been, could have been. But yeah, I looked. I'm like, nah, they, I definitely, for whatever reason, I didn't see them on that tour. And I looked. I'm like, ah, they didn't even come here. There's a good reason you didn't. Hmm. Mike, your memories? Yeah, I remember um, because uh, a friend of mine in high school named Frank Hall, who was you know, also a guitar player, um, he and I went to the show and he might have been probably the only African-American guy at the show. And he, we would always get into fights because of that. I don't know why that was, but the, the, the poor guy was such a, he had such a tr- tremendous soul. It was a tremendous guitar player and he loved rock and he loved metal and he loved blues. And, you know, it's never, you know, never really fit in in that way. And I always felt bad for that, but point being, we appreciated, you know, good guitar players and, and loud tone and, and, and volume and stuff. Um, but if I remember specifically that Whitesnake was the opening band for the show, right? Mm-hmm. It was yes. Whitesnake on the 1987 right. record, which was huge. I mean, the fact that you had this English band opening for an American band, which on which was probably a bigger record than, you know, the Girls, Girls, Girls record in terms of popularity. Yeah, I think Whitesnake ended up selling like 7 million copies of that record. Yeah, so, you know, here you have, you know, Whitesnake opening to that. But also I remember being disappointed because I remember the Whitesnake 1987 record was so cool because he had John Sykes playing guitar. And then like the video was like this whole different lineup. Like it just, it, it, it seemed like a mismatch. Like the whole, you know, dignified English, you know, good evening, Pittsburgh, you know, David Coverdale, you know, and these guys wearing these long, you know, leather you know, trench coats and stuff. It just seemed like, what are you guys doing? You know, we're like a blue collar town. Like we're not, I'm not believing what you're selling you, man. You know, I, you know, in a way, I, what I'm trying to say that I personally, I think Whitesnake bombed. Yeah, Motley Crue, and you know how could they not? Because then when you got Motley Crue coming out, playing the way they did, it was almost like you know, much like seeing um, the way Guns N' Roses were when they opened for Aerosmith on the Permanent Vacation tour. But you know, if you put Guns N' Roses in a headline slot, it was almost like Motley Crue were about to drop dead at any point during the yeah. show, and it was dangerous. And it was probably the loudest, rudest guitar sound I've ever heard in my life. I remember going to Frank Hall saying, "What is up with that tone? Like that is." so loud and so over the top like whoa you know and that's like major 
stature like how do you how do you sound like that you know and can i want to be part of that <laughs> that is so great that is so kick-ass you know and the fact that you have this american band kicking the shit out of this english band you know with you know at that point it's like the un of, of white you had uh, vivian campbell from ireland you had uh, adrian vandenberg from wherever he's from and rudy sarzo you know it was like come on man you guys can't you know we don't you don't even owe for Motley Crue at this point. But Motley kicked ass, but they also felt like it looked like they were about to self-destruct on stage. Whether yeah. that was on purpose and by design to make it sell the concept of a dangerous rock band, I don't know. But to me, I thought these guys are going to drop dead on stage right in front of me. And yeah. I enjoy every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, my memories of the show, first of all, I remember even before they turned off the lights and, and played the opening intro, um, just before they went on, they played Frank Zappa be a cruise slut, right? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's yeah, yeah, yeah. They're referring yeah. to the road crew, <laughs> but I thought that was a, a brilliant bit of, uh, of uh, cleverness there. Yeah. And then, it was cranked. It was loud too. It was loud. It was, yeah. yeah, it was, it was like the pre intro intro. And then yeah. they turned the lights off and they, they played stripper music and then they came on <laughs> and did, uh, all in the name of rock and roll. Um, yeah, I remember, I mean, I enjoyed the show. I, I, I remember the extended thing that they did where uh, Nikki downs a bottle of Jack Daniels or what was supposedly Jack Daniels and then tumbles across the stage and and Vince Neil go, does this uh, vocal rant about how... Uh, you know, we got any sick motherfuckers out there tonight? And, you know, well, let me tell you something, you know, the sickest mother uh, motherfucker I know is right here, Mr. Nikki Six. And he does his old bass solo thing. And, you know, it, it, it did feel a little contrived to me even then. But, uh, but at the same time, they are one of those bands that it is hard sometimes to know where the cave fabe starts and where the reality begins and ends you know um so final thoughts about girls 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 um again i'm i'm sort of amazed that i kept buying these albums <laughs> you know what i mean because i'm sort of like i bought theater pain i bought this you know what i mean i remember like being a true motley crew fan and i think at this point i was starting to say I'm maybe not a Motley Crue fan anymore. So, um, but I went to the show, you know what I mean? And it was a great show. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I still, you know, still love them. Dave? Yeah, uh, same thing. You know, I, I was a big supporter of the, fan, of the band up to this point in time. Um, most of this album kind of lost me back then. But there were bright things in the future for them, so uh, you know, we'll be talking about that, you know, later on. But um, probably my least, one of my least favorite Motley Crue records is this one. Okay. I think the problem is. I'm sorry to interrupt. I think the problem is is that we spent money on those albums. We spent hard earned, or we got them for Christmas, or we got them for our birthday. And I think we didn't want to admit that they sucked. Hey, man, <laughs> I spent my perfectly good no money on a free promo from the label on that. I'll have you know. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Go ahead, Mike, sorry. Yeah, truly something for nothing, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I'll say this. Um, 
I, I will stand behind Theater of Pain as a record overall. I don't, I, I still don't know why. Maybe it's because it's a soundtrack of my youth at the time. But I think, granted, there are songs in this record, Wild Side and Girls, 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 that kick any song on Theater of Pain's ass. Yep. In terms of arrangement and authenticity, it's, you know, those are great songs for this record. But it goes off that cliff, like we said. But at the same time, too, I think overall Theater of Pain is just more of a cohesive record in a way. It was a little more focused. They, I, I could, I could, I could buy what they're trying to sell in a way. But beyond girls, 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 and maybe dancing on glass, it lost me for this yeah. record in a way. But at the same time, too, I mean, any album that has a song like Wild Side or Girls, Girls, Girls is a good record, in my opinion. You know, if you got two strong tracks on a record, mm-hmm. then you're batting a thousand in a way. You know, in a in a way, you know, you can because there are tons of bands that would never write a song as good as Wild Side or Girls, Girls, Girls. They were coming out at the time, so. Hats off to those guys for, for releasing this record with at least those two songs. If everything else kind of paled in comparison, so be it. But, you know, to me, this album almost kind of contains like the, the ultimate Motley Crue song, which is Wild Side. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. kicks ass. Great track. Yeah. I, I think this, this record in some ways suffers from the fact that Nikki wrote it very quickly. Um, and sometimes that's a great thing when you're, capturing the energy of the moment and mm-hmm. and but i i think in this case it didn't serve them well i think that there was a part of him that wanted to do a completely different type of record and he just couldn't get it together enough to focus and put in the time and the energy to make that record so he ended up making this record instead and i remember when i got it in high school i thought for the first time that they're repeating themselves and some of the things that they're doing aren't working very well for them. And it wasn't a great, great feeling. I still love the band, but yeah, this is definitely a low point for the original lineup up until this point. So and I bring up one final point too that we didn't get into. Um, and this is brought up in the, the MTV uh, documentary and is also you know online if you want to look it up. Apparently, this record went to number two as an album yes. on the charts, right? And it was a huge seller, only to be topped by Whitney Houston for the number one slot, right? So they were poised to be number one. Yes, and Nikki's Six has this theory that actually the record companies bought Whitney Houston's album to number one and that actually Motley Crue should have gotten that, which is conceivable. Do you know how the industry worked then? Because I can tell you exactly he's right. Because I was in late on for that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, please do. I'm so, sorry. I have some background noise here. Like in my case, like Odyssey Records, being the biggest record store in Las Vegas at the time, was one of a handful of uh, record stores in the country that Billboard would use for their research. Uh, so yeah. what happened? What would happen is every week, <laughs> Billboard would send they would send you an envelope that basically had new releases and then they had the the catalog stuff basically pink floyd dark side of the moon stuff that was on a chart for a long time and you would rate those generally um strong very strong week and then top 10 number one number two so what the labels did back then is they would call a guy like me who was a manager an assistant manager whoever was reporting his job it was to report to billboard and they'd pay off you get free tickets backstage passes um, what we call cleans, 
they'd send you a box or two of clean. So you'd get 50 copies of a record, the latest record, say of Whitney Houston or Michael Jackson. I'm just throwing some examples out to you in exchange for you reporting that record, number one or number two. Ah. See that? And they did the same thing with, with some of the radio stations. That's before they went to sound scan. Yeah. So it was very, very easy for them back then to manipulate the data, right? And, and so, you know, mom and dad would walk into the store and they would ask the record store clerk, hey, what's selling? And they would go over to the, the billboard chart that was probably posted somewhere and they would see Motley Crue, Whitney Houston, whatever. And that certainly helped drive sales, but it was easily manipulated back then. So I can 100% and, and having lived through it, there was a huge, huge, huge marketing campaign and label push for Whitney Houston. Okay. What was the Whitney Houston song? I feel like I should know this. It was her debut record, I believe, at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So the full force of Clive Davis and everything that he had behind him. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's a great record. Don't, there's nothing to be taken away from Whitney Houston, but I can tell you at the time, the culture in the music industry that I, I experienced firsthand back then, that's what it was about. But I can also tell you, um, I, I, you know, I ordered all that stuff, you know, for, you know, for our, uh, you know, our store. And Motley Crue was, was definitely the seller. You know, kids were coming in buying Motley Crue. Certainly there was other stuff, you know, Rat and those things. But Motley Crue, unlike some of those others, you know, like Rat and Dockin, really had the sustainability. You know, you know they, kids were coming in, they had their, you know, their fan base, and that core fan base was showing up, and they were buying that record. I, I would make a real strong argument in Nikki's uh, favor that the only thing keeping Motley Crue legitimately out of the number one spot back then was a marketing campaign and payola by uh, Arista. Hmm. Okay. Well, there you have it. Join us next week. We will take an in-depth look at Dr. Feelgood.